there was this one group of researchers, this was in 2007, they looked at a total of 596 genes. And about half those genes decreased their protein expression with the aging process, and half increased their protein expression with the aging process. When they put these older subjects, and I think they define them as 65 to 72 years old, on resistance training programs, everything reversed. Also, nearly 600 genes, everything reversed. And the name of the study, so they took muscle biopsies and all this stuff, was resistance training reverses aging in human skeletal muscle. Wow. That was so powerful. It, sends a, it sent a chill down my spine the first several times I looked at that. So literally, resistance training, high-intensity resistance training, is the closest thing that we have to the fountain of youth. So, Informed Nation, did you catch that? That was exercise physiologist and certified master trainer Ryan Hall. In case you missed it, he said, genetically speaking, high-intensity resistance training is the closest thing we have to the fountain of youth. What else do you need to hear? Well, Ryan Hall joins us again on the Informed Fitness Podcast with the science to back that claim up here in episode 32. For those who are new to the podcast, let me introduce myself. My name is Tim Edwards. I'm the founder of the Inbound Podcasting Network, but more importantly, I've been a client of Informed Fitness for the past year and a half at the time of this recording. Now soon, you'll hear from New York Times best-selling author and the founder of Informed Fitness himself, Adam Zickerman. His general manager from the Manhattan location, Mike Rogers, will be with us, as well as the co-owner of the Informed Fitness Toluca Lake location, Sheila Melody. Now, like I said at the top of the show, Ryan Hall is back with us for part two of Working Out According to Your Genetics. Remember last week, we discussed the genetic distinctions between those of us who might have either oxidative slow-twitch muscle fibers or glycolytic fast-twitch muscle fibers and how understanding our genetic attributes can determine the results that we experience through our high-intensity strength training. Let's pick up where we left off last week with part two of Working Out According to Your Genetics with exercise physiologist and certified master trainer, Ryan Hall, here on the Informed Fitness Podcast. So Ryan, there are these, what they call phenotypes, the outward appearance of different individuals, and, and, and they have different types of, of body types, uh, phenotypically or observationally, by looking at them. You have the ectomorph, the endomorph, and the mesomorph. Let's define those for our audience too, Adam, for those that don't know. So the ectomorph, that's that's more of the lanky, very lean type, very hard to build muscle, skinny, skinny, skinny type of person. That would, yeah, just think Woody Allen. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Woody Allen meets Ichabod Crane. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> endomorph would be kind of more that, that pear-shaped person, a soft-looking person, uh, you know, carries ex- excessive body fat, not very muscular at all. Danny Don't, DeVito. No, sorry. John Danny Candy. De- <laughs> right, and then you have the mesomorph, which is the very muscular build, like Mike uh, Rogers. Mike and Rogers. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, I'm in the middle there. So, 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 based on based on those phenotypic traits, uh, Ryan, would you be able to say, okay, this person is uh, more of a glycolytic type, a fast twitch type? And this person is more of the uh, you know slow twitch endurance type. You know, Adam, it's that's a really interesting question because at one point in time, yeah, I probably made that speculation, but I actually had turned out that that was wrong. 
Um, yeah. I've, I've since given up trying to determine someone's fiber type distribution or the way that their, the fatigue response, metabolic response, just by looking at them. And um, I can actually use one antidote from, uh, from our own clientele. Um, we had this guy, Eric, who's uh, still one of our clients now, and he contacted me, maybe it was about a year ago, and he had read um, some of my genetics writings and whatnot, and went to the, you know, went to the website and saw we, we were talking about um, training people according to their genetics and responses and stuff like this, and Eric has tried unsuccessfully to add muscle through resistance training. Um, in the past. He's worked with other trainers and it didn't really work very well. So he came in. He's one of my, my uh, Scott is one of my trainers, has been training Eric for a long time. And we, we put him kind of on a standard uh, time under load program just to see where he was going to fall. And he got a little stronger, but not a whole lot stronger. We were keeping him for maybe two-minute time under loads. Um and that's when we really started thinking. He didn't put on a whole lot more muscle mass. So Scott and I started discussing um, and talked about it. And we said, let's do the fatigue response test with him. So we did his one rep max. And um, 80% did 80% did the test. And it turned out that he had much more strength-based fiber and much more of that glycolytic tissue. He was on the machine for literally anywhere from 40 seconds to a minute. So we kind of capped his time under load at a minute. And when we started training him that way, uh, also those subjects generally require a little more recovery time in between. So, you know, definitely he wasn't training any more than once per week. And over the period of the next couple of months, Eric gained 17 pounds of muscle. For wow. the first time in his life, did he ever put on any muscle? And uh, that's still not with an optimized diet. Um, his work schedule is such that he doesn't eat usually more than uh, a meal a day and a snack or whatever. Um, so our next goal with Eric is to really start working with him uh, by boosting his protein and kind of getting his macronutrients under 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 uh, control with that. So prior to that, then uh, he was doing conventional higher volume workouts, and that's why he wasn't seeing the results. And then when you realized uh, who he was, so to speak, he, he by cutting down his TULs, and, and uh, that all of a sudden t uh, TUL means time under load. And when you did that, that's when he started seeing these gains. So yeah, he was overtraining. Yeah, he yeah. Oh, absolutely. So he had, he had, he had worked with a few trainers in the past, but you know when you don't. Again, this is another example of selection or survivorship bias, right? So they were uh, – he had worked with a few trainers in the past, and they were training him with larger volumes of exercise, okay, and more increased frequencies. And he did, he did not adapt to that at all. And eventually, when, if you don't – if something doesn't work for you, you're usually going to stop doing it, okay? So that's when he contacted us. And mm -hmm. we were still – you know, I think Scott started training him maybe once every five days, and, uh, you know, he was doing a number of exercises, six to eight exercises or so for about two-minute time under loads. But he did better than he had done in the past. But it wasn't – he wasn't progressing at the same rate we would have liked to see or put on the same amount of muscle. So, yeah, that's when we tried to – okay, let's really figure out what's going on with this guy. And he was used your typical ectomorph, okay? I mean, that's that phenotypic expression. But it wasn't until we really dialed him in 
and you know increased the resistance, kept his time under loads much shorter, and increased his recovery uh, interval that he started to gain muscle. And it literally within a few months, he put on 17 pounds. Only, so, uh, I'm sorry, is it doing only one set to muscle failure? Absolutely, yeah. Just one set to muscle failure for anywhere between 40 seconds on the machine to a minute. So we were looking for basically like three solid, really slow reps from Eric. Yeah, and, and, and conversely, I have a client who, but you look at him, he's totally a mesomorph. So you're thinking this guy is going to be like, you know, strong as can be, low TOLs, heavy weights. And it turns out he performs much better at two-minute-plus uh, failure rates. And, and I'm actually doing breakdowns with him, right? So we'll do, we'll do a weight, and he's not happy until we basically pick a weight. He reaches failure in two minutes. Then I lower the weight by you know, 20%, 30%. He does another three or four reps until failure. And then I drop the weight again by another 20%, 30%. And that's when he feels he's getting the greatest workout, and he's, that's where he's getting his gains. And like you look at him, you're like, this guy is not – look like a, an endurance type of person. But that's, you know, again, another example of how you can't judge a book by its cover, so to speak. Absolutely. Can, totally. They found so many exceptions to the rule. Yeah. What, would, what you would assume is a, a rule, like an ectomorph would be only oxidative or a mesomorph would only be a glycolytic. One thing that I've done that helps is we have, you know, as you, I'm sure you have with your clients, we have these intake forms and we ask them a whole bunch of questions. And, and a lot of the questions we ask have to do with their past experiences, not only with exercise, but with sports and activities in general. And uh, like you said about selection bias, people gravitate to things they do well. So when I look at an intake form and I see that this person played soccer or was, on, or, uh, was a marathon runner, uh, then I say to myself, well, this person is gravitating to things they're good at. So I would pretty much guess that they're probably the you know oxidative, slow-twitch muscle fiber type. As opposed to somebody else who said that their their pastime activities have been more of the you know uh, strength uh, based types of uh, activities, maybe football or something like that. Sprinting. So that 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 usually get yeah sprinting for example. So that that would give me a clue, and and very often that that kind of uh, helps me narrow it down to who I'm dealing with. Yeah, we do something very similar. The only thing is, I just do an interview. I sit down, and instead of having someone fill out an intake form, just the way I prefer to do it, uh, I ask a series of questions, and it allows me to explore a little deeper. You know, so um, and and many of the clients that I do now are actually rehabilitation clients. You know, it's people that I have trouble walking, back pain, neck pain, shoulder, whatever. So when I you know, when I, I can kind of explore like what the mechanisms of injuries are or whatever the case may be. But yeah, when we're talking about that's a question I always uh, insert is what what is your past exercise history? And um, I'm taking notes the entire time. And then I'll ask them, you know, what are you doing now? Uh, I need to know if they're doing anything now that's going to interfere with the training stimulus that we are imposing. Yeah, our our intake form is literally it, it's the same thing. It's a it, it's, point. it's literally a starting point for a consultation, which is essentially an interview as well. You know, with tons yep. of notes and everything. Well, what I just want to you know, everybody's talking about all this, and you guys tend to refer to male subjects, and I'm very interested to hear if for our audience to hear is there much difference between how women and men are de- 
you know, whether they're glycolytic or oxidative or how do they train? Uh, does it change as you get older? You know, think in both respects, does it change as you get older? That is a, a, actually an amazing question to ask. And so there's a slight tendency for women to drift more to the oxidative uh, part of the spectrum. But that's only very, very slight. That's not in all cases. I gave you an example of, of this girl, Lisa, that Shelly's training about how, you know, she's so glycolytic. Four exercises, one minute, boom, and that's it. And I have, in my own clientele, I have some women who are extremely glycolytic also. Now, what you asked about is if you, do we see a change with aging? And if people are untrained, okay, or we haven't, they haven't done anything to maintain that tissue, what we find over time, if we take muscle biopsies from younger subjects, compare it to muscle biopsies with older subjects, on average, older subjects actually lose their capacity for strength at a lot faster rate than they lose the capacity for endurance. And the thing is, literally, if you don't use it, you will lose it. So if you don't do anything, like if they're normal every day, it doesn't require strength training or lifting, let's say, 50-pound sacks of sugar or potatoes or anything lifting heavy, the, sp the spinal motor neurons, those fast-twitch motor neurons, actually die in the spinal column. You actually lose that, that function. And um, you have those muscle fibers that were previously innervated by that motor neuron that is now atrophied and died. And the surrounding tissue will re-innervate those previous, let's say, glycolytic fibers. And in older muscle, you see what's called fiber grouping or clustering, where if you take a muscle biopsy, let's say from a normal subject, you see more like a checkerboard pattern. Okay, where, you know, let's say the dark tissue is going to be glycolytic, the white tissue is going to be oxidative, depending upon the enzyme that they're staining for, where in older muscle, you see this clustering of glycolytic tissue together and oxidative tissue together. But in younger subjects, you may have, let's say, close to a 50-50 distribution, depending upon the individual, obviously, and what muscles being being biopsied. But you may, may see, let's say, half and half. And in, um, in older subjects, you see a loss of that strength-based tissue. So in my st strong, strong opinion, it's especially important as we go through the aging process that someone engages in high-intensity resistance training in order to maintain that strength-based tissue. And that's exactly what we see in the study of sarcopenia. Sarcopenia is the term for age-related muscle wasting. And it's interesting because, you know, I've been training, like Adam, Adam and I were talking about, we've been doing this for a very long time. Uh, I train several people in their 80s. We even had a client as old as 96. And it's unbelievable. I mean, you really would not believe that these people are as old as they are because they're still mentally there, all there. There's, you know, mental capacities there. You know, uh, one of my clients, Augie, is 84 years old, one of my best friends. He, you know, goes and plays tennis a couple times a week. And he's literally in better condition at 84 than my father is at 64. 
Um, and it, and other, mm-hmm. I train a lot of women that I've been training for a very long time. And literally, if you look, they're all, I could show you photos of women that are 60, 60s, uh, close to 70. And they're dermatologists. One of, one of them, this is Lady Linda. She's, um, she's 69 years old. She's really close to 70. Um, and her dermatologist, who I also know, said, uh, you have a better body than most women in their 30s that I see. That's amazing. So, <laughs> I love it. It's, it's pretty it's, – it, it blows me away still after all these years that I've been training that, I mean, I, I, could, I could go through the names, Susan, Tiffany, all you know. Yeah. No, we, we, we have them. We have the, we have the same <laughs> yeah. case. It's, it's unbelievable. And, uh, uh, you know, you look at people who uh, – um, you know, over 50, especially and, and anybody who comes in here with bone density issues and arthritis and they have usually had the most, I mean, uh, unbelievable testimonies. I mean, you could tell that they're, they're, you know, because they've been lacking resistance training, uh, and we've offered a, a safe way of doing it. <laughs> so totally it's, it's the right now. I mean, that's the only treatment. <laughs> so if the they treatment. if they haven't been training and and they start like in their sixties, I mean, is that um, they're still going to benefit? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the research literature is very definitive on that. Not only the research literature, but obviously Adam and I have the same experience. I mean, there's only so far that you can turn the clock back. I mean, I've mm-hmm. I see I see people in their forties that are my age that have totally let themselves go. And so, uh, you know, I don't know. Obviously, they can improve, but they're not going to completely reverse the clock 100%. But, yeah, I mean, I've started training people in their 60s and 70s, and absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting. What the, um, what the research literature shows is that uh, healthy but untrained 50-year-old subjects – exhibit about the same functional capacity as trained um healthy 70 year old subjects so we have about a you know there's like a 20 year to 30 year turning back that clock on functional capacity and um we've known this for some time and i I do want to mention one study that is just extremely significant Okay, and the reason why I want to mention this study is the name of the study just blows me away. Normally, scientists are extremely measured in their wording. Okay, so you may see a study something like this. High-intensity resistance training increases insulin-like growth factor 1 splice variant expression in human skeletal muscle. So unless you're a serious <laughs> unless you're a serious physiology geek, right? Most people aren't going to know what that is. But there was this one group of researchers, this was in 2007. They looked at a total of 596 genes. And about half those genes decreased their protein expression with the aging process and half increased their protein expression with the aging process. When they put these older subjects, and I think they define them as 65 to 72 years old, on resistance training programs, everything reversed. Also nearly 600 genes, everything reversed. And the name of the study, so they took muscle biopsies and all this stuff, was resistance training reverses aging in human skeletal muscle. Wow. That was so powerful. 
it sends a, it sent a chill down my spine the first several times I looked at that. So literally, resistance training, high intensity resistance training, is the closest thing that we have to the fountain of youth. So, so what you're saying then is this, that this uh, high intensity strain training can basically start upregulating genes that were really in their decline, and all of a sudden they're being upregulated again. Yeah, their protein expression increases, absolutely. And it increases to to mimic those of younger subjects. That was yeah, absolutely. It's um So this is what Ponce de Leon was looking for all the time. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. It was <laughs> it wasn't <laughs> insane, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. So so speaking, you know, I have another question for you because um this is really interesting and it speaks to these genes that you're talking about, and depending upon what genes you actually have, and, and again, part of this this episode that we're talking about is uh, understanding that certain genetic uh, attributes uh, that people have uh, will really determine their results in exercise and their ability to build muscle. Uh, I've heard that it's true because I never thought this. I always thought that if you get stronger that your muscles are going to get bigger, that there's a linear relationship between the two. You get stronger, you're going to hypertrophy, you're going to get bigger. But actually, uh, research has been shown that depending upon your genetic profile, that you could actually gain strength but not muscle size and vice versa, that you can gain muscle size but actually not much strength. Is that actually true? That is actually um, regulated by a gene called interleukin-15. Uh, genotype and interleukins are a component of the inflammatory response or the immune system. The inflammatory system is part of the immune system. And there was this when I first really, really started digging into the research literature. This is one of the first studies that blew my mind. So interleukin fifteen. We we generally have three states of a gene. If you remember, Adam, back to high school biology. There were um, dominant recessive, right? Like eye color. Okay, yeah, so yeah, yeah. brown. If you, yeah. Right. So if your both parents, have, if, if both parents have recessive, like uh, big B, small B for blue eyes, then there's a 25 percent chance you'll have blue eyes and that kind of matrix that you do. Exactly. That's yeah, what used yeah. to be called the punt square, right? Right. Punt so, square. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, and so um, that's dominant recessive. Now, m- m- most genes in the body don't necessarily. Uh, express ourselves as dominant recessive like that, but there's co-dominance or shared dominance, yeah, which is a blending of the two traits, okay? So so we have these three states of a gene. One is called the homozygote wild type, okay? The blending of the two traits is called the heterozygote condition. And then if it's less than 20 or 18% of a population, it's known as a mutation, okay? So what these researchers did was that they took a large group of of subjects and they divided them up by genotype and then they put them on a resistance training program. And what was really interesting about this is the genotype that gained the most amount of strength gained the least amount of muscle and the genotype that gained the most amount of muscle gained the least amount of strength. And that was purely dictated by this one gene. So, you know, it's funny because the mutated condition was the group that, or the less frequent condition, was, mm-hmm. the, was the group that the genotype 
that gained a lot of muscle per unit of strength gain. But if you think about this sort of from an evolutionary efficiency survival ship, you know, survival aspect, uh, you're because muscle is metabolically active tissue. It needs calories. It needs protein to keep that alive. Okay, um, your body would want to add as little muscle mass per unit of strength gain as possible. And so for most individuals, it's very difficult to add a lot, a lot of muscle. And, but it makes sense from an evolutionary perspective in that you have a survival advantage if you are stronger without getting bigger. Right. And, um, yeah. So how is, that, how is that possible? Because, I mean, I'm playing devil's advocate here because I, I think I know the answer. But, like, explain then because, you know, if somebody's getting bigger, that means the, the myofibrils, the, the – the, uh, the cells that make up a muscle fiber, they start building and growing. So if somebody's getting stronger and they're building myofibrils, uh, how are they not getting bigger? So, I mean, those people do get bigger, but they don't get as big as the mutated genotype condition. So the structure of the myofibrils might be smaller, for example. They don't get as puffy, maybe. Their, their structure is slightly different. Yeah, and they also have greater adi- uh, neurological adaptations and biochemical adaptations, mm-hmm. okay? So the exact conclusion from these researchers, uh, this individual study, was hypertrophy has been considered the ideal response to resistance training and cellular studies of muscle growth. But muscle quality has been examined recently to reflect a measure of mass to performance efficiency. If neurological and biochemical adaptations are not sufficient to respond to the overload stimulus, hypertrophy, or increasing muscle size, may be a compensating adaptation. Mm. So, yeah, you have, we have other... I have, so many, I have so many frustrated clients that, you know, they're getting stronger. I'm showing them, you are getting stronger. You're lifting more and more weight. And they're like, yeah, but I'm not, I'm not getting bigger. And I, so they're like, I don't give a crap about how strong I am. I want, I want, I want to get the girls, you know. I want, I want to get bigger, you know. So, it's, it's, so can, I, can I actually take a muscle biopsy of these people and see if, see if they have uh, w- which uh, genotype of uh, interleukin-15 they have? So... There's various labs that test for these genes, okay? Would it be possible to do so? Yes, it's possible. Finding a lab that will do it for you is going to be more difficult. Uh, you know, when I first gave this lecture was in 2006, the genetics lecture. And that's when right, right around 2004, 2005, all the genes were starting to just, you know, be discovered for this uh, high variability and this is when 23andMe kind of just got up and rolling. I actually had approached them and wanted to come up with a genetic test to you know, give me sort of an idea of where somebody would fit. It was like a swab prescribed method of exercise. And there's a lot of genes that I wanted to look at. And they were just getting up and rolling. And they, the, the genetic test was more expensive at the time. And they were not necessarily really interested in testing for these specific genes. So 23andMe only test for one of these genes. And that doesn't really tell me a whole lot of information. There's a few other laboratories in the United States that test for, again, you know, one or two genes. And that doesn't really tell me a whole lot. Um, so I'm hoping at some point in time there will be 
uh, a lab that does a, a more comprehensive genetic test. And I think interleukin-15 would be one of those more important genotypes to test, uh, at least from the, the prospect of, of what we do for a living, for our industry. Because if we could do a swab uh, prescribed method of exercise, if this guy comes in and says, man, I want to get really, really big, well, unless you have the mut mutated condition for interleukin-15, it's probably not going to happen. I mean, yeah, you're going to get stronger and you're going to add some muscle mass, but that person's probably never going to be a bodybuilder. And genes work together. Like if you just pick out one gene like interleukin-15, they, they work with other genes. And depending upon what those other genes are will also depend on the effect of the interleukin-15, I imagine, because, you know, there's so much unknown about how genes actually interact with each other. And there are so many other genes. I, I kind of feel like, you know, um, there are so many uh, different, uh, uh, you know, factors, uh, genetic factors that, that uh, d determine uh, whether you can get strong or, and, and, and hypertrophy that, you know, just, just isolating one gene, like you might mention, isn't, isn't really going to tell the whole story. Uh, are we close to knowing how they all interact with each other, you know? And no. It doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, it doesn't matter. I mean, like, and, and the other thing is also, I mean, you might be testing for, uh, you might do a muscle biopsy in, in the thigh, for example, uh, but that doesn't mean that's the same profile that's in your bicep or your, or your chest muscle, you know, so. Uh, as far I don't as even, fiber type distribution. Yeah, fiber yeah, type distribution. Fiber. And, right. Yeah, and, and even maybe for interleukin-15, would that vary between muscle group and muscle group or is that going to be consistent throughout the body, you think? No, that's going to be consistent throughout your genetics. But, but you're, you're right, though, that there's a lot of different genes that have been discovered that have some influence on um, you know our aspects from adaptation to exercise and what we don't know is how all of these genes interact with each other or if some have a more um, you know controlling mechanism than, than another gene this is something that we don't know yet but you know this is the thing with science as in science answers questions we always get more questions, more questions from those <laughs> answers. I mean, this is this is stuff. Literally, when I was in school for exercise physiology, I I never imagined we'd have questions for. So we have those questions, and we have some answers, but we don't have all the answers, and that just leads to more questions. So what I'm looking forward to in the future is to seeing how these various genotypes really interact with each other. But until then. What we have now is what you and I and Mike do on an everyday basis, which is uh, initiate a stimulus and then make an observation. And so I think that may be even more important than knowing what the genotype is because it all comes down to how does this person respond to the exercise stimulus. That's the bottom line. If you took like a, uh, a profile of the genes of someone like LeBron James, for example, like a muscle biopsy of, of an, a profile, all of their all the, the genes that are that we know are likely involved with performance, you know, uh, with sprinting or jumping or whatever, or people who exhibit a skill that we know is great, and you you biopsy their glutes and their quads and their chest and their shoulders and all that stuff, and then if you can actually identify that among 
kids in their when they're five, six, seven, eight oh years old and say, oh, you know something? You are meant for hockey. You have the exact mm-hmm. same profile or very close to the same profile as Alex Ovechkin or LeBron James or whoever. Well, you know, you know like yeah, Mike, that's Russia. kind of the big push right now, actually. One of the genes that, um, that they're testing for is called uh, uh, alpha actin 3. And there's, it's a, it's a protein that's found in fast twitch or fast glycolytic muscle fibers. But some people completely lack this protein, some humans, where it's thought to be, at one point in time, it was thought to be functionally redundant. And that alpha actin 2 did the same, basically did the same function. But what we found, if you, is they actually perform biopsies, just what you're saying from high-level sprinters, like world-class sprinters, and then perform biopsies from world-class endurance athletes. And what they found is that the endurance athletes, for the most part, lack alpha-actin-3. And the sprinters and the power athletes actually were much higher percentage of those athletes that contained alpha-actin-3. So that's one of the genes that actually is measured by uh, 23andMe. That's the one gene, and that's the one gene that's most strongly um, being done by the other genetics testing labs. And so, yeah, it's interesting that that's one gene that really strongly influences that type of activity. But again, it's only one gene. There are other factors that come into play and – I'm really interested in seeing in the future how these genes interplay with each other or if some of these genes are clustered with each other. That's stuff we don't know right now. Can you touch upon the epigenetics and how that could affect, you know, all this stuff? Let's say you don't want people to say, oh, I only have this, so now I can only do that. How does epigenetics come into play here? So, I mean, as sort of we were discussing before with that study that looked at a total of 600 genes and the reverse is aging and whatnot like that. So the study of epigenetics, we can't change our genotype, but we can, we, most genotypes are not, most, I should say most phenotypes, which are traits, right? Adam was talking about phenotype, phenotypic, phenotypes are just known as traits, okay? Most traits in the human body or most phenotypes, are determined by uh, genotype environmental interactions, okay? Mm -hmm. So, obviously, personality can be one of those, right? I mean, the stuff that we go through in our life, our life experiences. um, But another environmental stimulus could be diet and exercise, okay? So, yes, so epigenetics tells us that we can change the expression of certain genes, But that change is ultimately going to be limited by the genotype. But that doesn't mean that we can't improve or make, you know, differences in expression. For example, when we're talking about interleukin-15, this person gets stronger, but they didn't get as large. They didn't add as much muscle mass. But they still do add muscle mass. So, yes, um, genes can be upregulated or downregulated, their protein expression, depending upon the environmental stimulus. And just because someone may not have the genetics to be a world-class bodybuilder doesn't mean that high-intensity resistance training isn't extremely beneficial for them. And this can be passed down generationally. Yeah, what we're finding is that uh, changes 
through epigenetics, small changes like that are eventually passed down to uh, you know the offspring of those people. So, Adam, uh, I don't have any children. I don't know if you plan on having kids, but our kids are ultimately going to be stronger than us if they continue to do high intensity training. <laughs> yeah, my my kids beat me up regularly. They're they're <laughs> nine and six, and they they kill me every day. <laughs> there you go, man. <laughs> mine mine do high intensity mind games at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, it's like my ex-wife. <laughs> I know my daughter's like my ex-wife. <laughs> well, Ryan, th- this has been a fascinating, fun, and very educational episode. Certainly appreciate you taking the time to join us here at the Informed Fitness Podcast. Thank you, yeah, man, thanks. guys. I really enjoyed talking to you. I'd, yeah. I'd love to do it any other time. Oh, it's so well, nice sure to meet you. Love to oh, have you. Even back. though we can't really see you, but that's it's right. very nice to yeah, meet you. For though, let's just let our audience know. You know, we we record these episodes via Skype. Adam and Mike in New York City. Uh, Sheila and I are here in the Los Angeles area, and Ryan is in New Orleans, but all we see on Ryan's uh, uh, <laughs> Skype side of, of our interface here is just a silhouette. <laughs> I wonder if that's by so design. Mysterious. <laughs> I, will, I will try to... So for, uh, you la- so for all you ladies out there, Ryan is a man of mystery. Yes, that's right. He's a man uh, of mystery. And, and Ryan, uh, you are located in the New Orleans area. Tell us a little bit about your facility and how folks can find you down there so um my business is down here is called exercise science llc probably the easiest way to find us is just to go to exercise science llc.com and that'll give you links to all of our social media accounts uh phone numbers emails whatever the case may be many thanks to exercise physiologist and certified master trainer ryan hall In case you're listening while you're driving or you didn't get a chance to jot down Ryan's information if interested, we will include all of his contact information and the links in the show notes. And if you're listening down in New Orleans, please be sure to let him know that you heard about him right here on the Informed Fitness Podcast. In this episode, you learned about the science behind the claim that the closest thing us humans have to the fountain of youth is high-intensity resistance strength training. To find that fountain of youth nearest you, Simply visit the Inform Fitness website at informfitness.com for a list of their seven locations across the U.S. You'll also find Adam's blogs, several videos, and if you're curious what Adam, Mike, and Sheila look like, you can even find their photos and bios there as well. If you are not near an Inform Fitness location, you can always pick up Adam's book, Power of Ten, The Once-A-Week Slow-Motion Fitness Revolution. Included in Adam's book are several exercises that support this protocol that you can actually perform on your own at home or in a gym near you. We'll have a link to purchase Adam's book in Amazon in the show notes as well. Finally, if you wouldn't mind, we would love a review of the podcast. We want to know what you think. What do you like? What don't you like? Or even if you have some topic suggestions, this is your show and we would love to hear what you think. You can do so in iTunes or whichever platform you might be listening from. You can always just shoot us an email if you like, or maybe if you'd like to appear on the podcast, you can record a voice memo on your phone and send your comments, questions, and suggestions to podcast at informfitness.com. Hey, thanks for listening. We really do appreciate it. And for Sheila Melody, Mike Rogers, and Adam Zickerman of Inform Fitness, I'm Tim Edwards with the Inbound Podcasting Network.